Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping pet professionals continue making a difference without burning themselves out. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in our community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Helen St. Pierre, and Helen is the owner of No Monkey Business Dog Training and also the founder of a really special rescue called Old Dogs Go to Helen. Thanks so much for joining me today, Helen. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk to you. You and I crossed paths a million years ago through Family Paws, so so we've known each other for a while, but we don't actually get a chance to talk very often. So, you know, just totally natural where I say, like, let's chat with a recording. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, the way that the digital era is now, everything feels like it's being recorded or through those kinds of, you know, so I think this is awesome. It's like going to coffee with with an old friend. Yeah, that's, I hope so too, because I I have wanted to catch up with you because I'm so fascinated about the work you're doing with Old Dogs Go to Helen, but I don't want you to tell that part yet. What I'd like to start with, with all of my guests is to tell us a little bit of your journey of like, when you were 10, what did you think you were going to do with your life? And then kind of lead us through to how we wound up right here and what it looks like now. Well, it's a it's a long winding story, uh, but it you know I was originally born in the UK. I'm a dual citizen from from Britain, and I was born in London, England, to my mother and my father. Who my father's British, my mother's American, and um, they or were not animal people. I mean, my mom kind of was, but my dad definitely wasn't. Um, and I did not grow up with with dogs or animals in my house. We had a cat um, and maybe I could talk my dad into a gerbil that would last for like six months or something. But it wasn't like I grew up with animals all around me all the time. But I, from a very, very early age, gravitated to them. And so it's even earlier than 10, I was around five or six years old that people would ask me what I wanted to do. And I used to tell them I wanted to be an insect doctor because I used to try in the yard to find uh, if I found a like a little ant that was drowning in my paddling pool, I would take the ant out and I would try to bring them back to life. And so animals were always on my radar, um, but I didn't have the opportunity to really hone in or focus on that until we moved to America when I was 14. Uh, my mom moved my brother and I over here. And uh, while I was in high school, I, I have a knack for drawing and painting. Um, I started painting pet portraits for extra money. Um, I had done a portrait of two Rhodesian Ridgebacks for uh, a friend of my mom's um, and he absolutely loved it. And he said, you know, my friends have seen this and they would love one also and you should look into doing this. So I I thought that's great. But this was in the age before cell phones where you could take quick pictures or have access to the internet the way that we do today. So I would have to buy a disposable camera And I would have to go photograph these dogs or cats in order to develop the pictures and then paint from the pictures at home. And I had no idea how to work with a dog to get that dog to sit or stay or do anything like that. So I would 
go to the library. Um, I would rent a book on dog training. I read about how to train these animals to do certain things. And I would do it in order to get the picture and do all that stuff. And it sort of developed very organically. And I loved the, the piece I loved the most was working with the animals. Of course, I loved the painting part. But again, I did. I wasn't growing up around animals. So I didn't have this idea that you could make a career of it, so to speak. Um, so I went mm -hmm. to school, art school uh, for um, college. I went to, I got a bachelor's of fine arts from Syracuse University. But while I was at Syracuse, I paid my way through school. I uh, worked at vet clinics. I worked for faculty members pet sitting their dogs. And then I started working in daycares um, too. I just, it was sort of like I found that I needed these connections with these animals and I I sort of found a way to get it. And that was what drew me to eventually getting my very first dog, Merlin, a Papillon. Um, and it was kind of like, and that was in my second year of college. And I continued my art career. But as soon as I graduated, I dropped the paintbrush, basically picked up a treat pouch and went from there. And at that point, I moved to Colorado to be with my um, long-term boyfriend. He was going to be a police officer. And I started my initial first ever real in-depth job with animals, like a full-time job, was through the La Plata County Humane Society in Durango, Colorado. And that was a very, very high kill shelter. We um, euthanized for space. We didn't just euthanize for behavior. Um and so I I jumped in head first, so to speak, into that into that realm. And then twenty one years later, here I am. Um, and yes, so it it really I'm one of those stories where it was like, no, you don't have to grow up with animals to end up being surrounded and working with mm -hmm. them. It to me, it was very much a a, a proof of genetics. Um, this is just in my genetics. And it wasn't till later in life that I found out that my great grandmother and uh, her sister used to breed collies, which I absolutely adore collies. I have two of them um, and were incredibly uh, involved in the horse community and in around the animal and farm community. So it's in my genetics. It's just they skipped a couple of generations and there here I am like this, like, oh, we're going to pour all of it for that we skip into one person <laughs> and it's going to be in her all the way. So here I am. Yeah. I love insect doctor. I think that's super cool. And you're the first person I've met. I've met a bunch who didn't have pets growing up, but you're the first I've met who went into it from the art perspective first. And then, you know, like, let me learn how to make the dog look happy so I can paint that picture of a happy dog. Awesome. Like, how cool is that? Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, nowadays, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, if that happened to me today in today's world, I never would have really had to go through that because of how instant access we have to these cameras and all of that. And, but I had to, you know, remember the times you had to wind up the camera and you had to wait for everything to like, so you had to teach the animal to perform that so you could do it. And so I, I, I don't know if the same thing had happened to me today. If I was my age, then I don't know how it would have happened. I'm probably would have ended up in the animal field no matter what, but I don't know if it would have happened in that exact same way. All all the pieces fell together the right way. Fascinating. Okay, so <laughs> there you are in Colorado. You're working in the Humane Society. How do we get from there to no monkey business? So while I was there, um, you know, I I climbed as you know, as I'm sure you're aware, shelter shelter work has a very high revolving door of people. So I started 
as a kennel tech um, and very quickly climbed up within a year and a half to being supervisor of the kennel. Um, and I was the uh, lead supervisor, but also ended up being the one to perform all the euthanasias. So we had 40 we had 40 open kennels, but 50 runs. So the way that it would work is we'd had four rows of 10. And in the mornings, you would shift the dogs over so we could clean each run, so to speak, and then shift them back. But we were right next to the reservation. And we would get a lot of stray dogs in every day because the animal control was built in through there. And so animal control would bring us four or five dogs uh, that they'd found as strays. Those dogs would have 24 hours to be picked up. If they weren't picked up, we had to go down the rows of the 40 kennels and say, which dog has been here long enough? Which dog has too many behavior problems? We have to euthanize those dogs in order to get these dogs in. Um, and I became extremely aware of behaviors and things that made dogs completely unadoptable, um, you know, that made it so that they were very difficult. And my interest in training and working with them was really, really growing. Um, and it really was one of those, you know, I started from, I started by scooping poop. I mean, that's where I was beginning. But um, the fantastic thing was that right in Colorado was a, a wonderful trainer named Julie Winkleman. And she came down to the shelter just to visit. And she saw me working with one of the dogs. And she said, you know, you should really come and hang out with me and, and watch what I do in my training classes. Um, and I did. And I started shadowing under her. And it wasn't long before she started having me teaching. And I said, I really want to have my own little side thing of what I want to call my my own little business. And of course, this is where going living in England came into work uh, for no monkey business. So my grandfather, <laughs> a very old Brit, used to say, you know, cut that monkey business out. And so when I was thinking about business names, I was like, what if I call it monkey business dog training? I was like, no, no monkey business dog training. So it all comes around back to my old British roots. And it really just stuck from there. And then when we moved from Colorado back to the East Coast, so I could be closer to my British family, um, I kept no monkey business. And you know, was doing things very on a small scale while also working in the vet tech field because my shelter and vet work um, sort of paralleled both. I couldn't live off my training um, experience at that time on its own. Um, but my work in the shelter shelter world and that those euthanasias that I did really pushed me to continue doing a lot of work with shelter and rescue and working with those dogs and exploring how we can help dogs in those scenarios. And so it's, it just, that's how it blossomed. That's where no monkey business kind of came from. Thank you. I think that's really cool. So then we have years of no monkey business, the training. And then a few years ago, uh, you opened a nonprofit and it was yeah. a very special nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what makes it unique? Well, you know, when you're in the animal world, for me anyway, my my experience with dogs and the work that I did at La Plata County shaped who I am as a person and as a trainer for my entire, like, there's no way that you can euthanize six healthy dogs a day for a long time without that really affecting you, right? Mm -hmm. These were healthy, happy dogs. But we also would euthanize a lot of older dogs and all of that. But my mission after leaving that shelter was I would always donate my time to any shelter or rescue that needed me. And so when I moved to uh, New Hampshire and Concord, 
I immediately sought out the Pope Memorial uh, Concord SPCA. And I said to them, if you ever need evaluations, if you ever need training for volunteers, like, please let me know. I will do it completely and totally pro bono. Like, I don't charge for that. It's like my it's my one way of feeling like I'm evening the scales for what I had to do and perform when I was there. And, you know, of course, if you have your finger on the pulse of a shelter, you're going to start seeing these dogs coming in. You're going to have a lot of connections with dogs that need your help. And for a while, I would foster dogs that were puppies, um, you know, were, you know, needed behavioral assistance and all of that stuff. But it wasn't until Merlin, my old senior initial dog, passed away at 15 that I was like, I need a senior dog in the house. I I missed the presence <laughs> of the senior dog, <laughs> of course. So, you know, within literally, it's like the way that the universe works with me. 48 hours after Merlin passed, who comes into the shelter at the, you know, at, but this tiny, starved, severely abused senior little Yorkie named Elliot. And uh, the shelter was like, does anyone want to foster him? And I was like, I will. Um, and we brought him back to life. He had some severe issues, but he passed from kidney failure after only nine months. But the presence of having him really left a huge impression on me. And I said, all right, I want another senior dog. Like it was sort of like I'd been doing it before, but I hadn't honed in on the seniors, if that makes sense. It wasn't mm -hmm. until I lost my senior that I realized how valuable they were. And at that time we were doing it one dog at a time. Um, but once you, once I became known in the community for the woman that takes the old stinky, <laughs> bald, <laughs> dying dogs, the needs started to really increase and people from all over New England and rescues were contacting me saying, we have this dog, nobody wants to adopt it. You know, can you give him a good, you know, few months? And so we started to end up having not just one, but two or three. And the problem with old dogs is they have a lot of medical issues and a lot of times incontinence issues. And we were doing this in our living room um, mm -hmm. with young kids, you know, and all of this. And so uh, what ended up happening was we were posting about it, but people wanted to help. They couldn't take the old dogs themselves, but they wanted to contribute. And they were saying, can we donate for this dog's skin care? Can we donate for this? And at the time I was like, yeah, send it to no monkey business. I'll count it as income. But as we were accumulating dogs, I realized, all right, it's time to create a whole separate space for this. And that's where we decided to name it Old Dogs Go to Helen created as that we uh, first were as a charitable organization. We weren't even a 501c3. But then as we grew, I was like, okay, we'll go down the road of becoming a 501c3. And it's all just sort of, you know, I look at it now, I'm like, how did this happen? But it, it was a process through about six years to get us where we are today. So what does it look like now? What does your <laughs> living room look like? right now. How many dogs are you taking care of and how are you taking care of these old dogs? <laughs> well, we very quickly realized um, once we formulated the 501c3 that once we hit, now we were the 501c3, we could really start accepting larger donations and we could start formulating a plan to have a space for the old dogs themselves. Because I had so many people that wanted to volunteer. I had people that wanted to come visit. But you know, I have personal dogs, my own personal dogs, and I, I really didn't want this sort of mixing and traipsing in and all of that. 
So I contacted my realtor and I said, I think it's time we need to look for a, a property that has a space designated for this. And we were able to find one, thank goodness. And so now we have a 20 acre property. We have a designated space for the old dogs that has their own fenced in yard, their own little sort of uh, cabin-ish area where it has its separate entrance. So volunteers can go in and go out. They are all on one level. So they don't have stairs or they have a ramp to go in and out. Um, pee pads everywhere. So they can pee and poop all over the place. And I'm not worried about my kids stepping into it. And we now have 20 hospice dogs under the wing of old dogs go to Helen. So wow. um, it evolved, but in a very healthy way. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's really amazing because like you said, the incontinence issues and the smell issues and the skin issues that most of us, when our old beloved dog goes, don't have that, oh, I need old dog energy in my life again. We have the, wow, I had no idea how much I was doing, like doing it and doing it with love and doing it happily. But when you stop taking care of an old dog and their um, recurring needs and how how it so much affects like where you can go and how long you can be gone yeah. and all the things um i i just haven't heard too many people saying i missed the old dog energy the the vibe and and wanted to not only do that but to have to have 20 to have 20 old dogs so it makes you a little special there <laughs> well there's something about old dogs for me and hospice dogs too because mm-hmm. it's not we don't just are a lot of some of our dogs aren't necessarily old they're hospice so that yeah. we've had puppies that are hospice or mm-hmm. you know do- middle-aged dogs in in failure kidney failure with cancer but there's something about caring for them and having them as part of our community in our mm-hmm. in my life that is extremely grounding and um their presence it makes a huge difference to my my young puppies, my house dogs, right? And we do bring them into our main house. It's not like they're all, a lot of the times we'll have a couple of old dogs in the main area in our main house too, because that presence is huge. It It is, it's a reminder. Like we're all going to go, like death is not avoidable. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to need help at that period. Um, and it also, it helps me appreciate so much more and keep perspective so much more in our day-to-day frivolous things that we mm-hmm. take for granted or we take way too seriously. So for me, it's, it's a huge, um, reminder. Um, and you're right. It's, it's so much work. Why would somebody go, oh, I want to keep doing that work. But I also now realize that if, if I don't do that work, there are a lot of people that also won't. And these dogs will die a really, really scary or terrible way of passing. And I don't, I don't, I would rather go through that work than have them have that. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it's like parenting while living with dogs who are only going to be here for a while. Yeah. It's true of all dogs. Like the hardest yes. part of parenting with, with pets is, is when they go. But you're in a situation where this is commonplace now because there are so many dogs that go through. What is that like for you as a mother and what has it been like for your daughters? So that's a great question. I tell clients, I tell, um, I talk about this often that working and having hospice and old dogs in the house has been one of the best parenting decisions I've ever made for my kids because it has taught them so much compassion and empathy and an understanding of 
what death is and what life is as a result. You know, there are dogs that come to us that we all get more attached to than others at this point because we have such a large one. When we were originally doing one dog at a time, those were some tougher conversations because you have just this one dog that we have to that we have to say, you know, say goodbye to. But what the kids have learned from this is what quality of life is and what quality of death is. Um, they're not scared of it. They're not scared of talking about it. It has allowed us to have so many really in-depth, not, I hate the word adult conversations because I understand that when I'm talking to my five-year-old, I'm talking to a Mm five-year-old and what her ability of understanding is, but it, it gives them a whole nother level of wisdom comparatively to people who want to shelter their kids from that and and hide it. And the more that you do that, the scarier it is. And Mm -hmm. I have seen so much more resilience in my kids as a result of this work Um, and joy, honestly, so much joy, you know, because they appreciate like when we see an older dog that we get that's come from a really bad situation and that dog we build them up and they start running and playing and eating again. They appreciate that so much more than I think the average kids in our society, because we hide it in our society, we hide death and it's scary. And that's something that I'm really trying hard to stop. I try really hard in my, a lot of my work to educate people on talking about death. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think your point about quality of life and quality of death is is super important in in all facets of our life. I mean, particularly your experience in the shelter really made a difference because quality of life is a decision that does need to be taken into account. That just life is not the same, at least in my right. opinion. Right. Um, and that there are things to celebrate even in hard times. Mm-hmm. You know, we we laugh about it. I was talking to a friend the other day and she said, you know, it's that experience where like, if everything's amazing and then you get a rock in your shoe that you're super aware of that rock, but you don't have the reverse thing of like, if everything is crappy and the most beautiful flower is next to you, you're not super aware of that beautiful flower, which is the same amount of impact on your environment per se, you know, but, but our brains don't scan for that or pay attention to that. And with, the dogs that you're caring for, I imagine there are so many things to celebrate for them on a daily basis. Oh, look, he ate all of his dinner today. Oh, look, he's wagging. Oh, look, you didn't pee. Yay. Oh, look, you're cuddling. You know, all these things are, are moments where you can say like, look, you are actually having quality of life. You are feeling like yourself. You are experiencing this world. And I think I think that's a real hard spot as a parent and also so beautiful. I, I admire that, that um, that you're wading right into that and saying, this is life. There's the ups and the downs and the beginnings and the ends, and all of it is real and valuable and beautiful and something that we can talk about. Exactly. And that the quality of life and quality of death overlap. Mm-hmm. They overlap because, you know, death is a usually a three-stage process in terms of like when you're talking about aging or disease and hospice, it doesn't just happen, right? You know, those are, that's often what we avoid. We have, we want to avoid the dog that goes from 
okay to suddenly crashing and we have to take them in on an emergency. We don't want that. Our goal with these hospice dogs is when hospice is, you know, palliative care is when the dog is living a good life. We don't want to wait until that dog is truly tanking to mm-hmm. take them in. So it's having those conversations and and having the kids understand what that looks like, that these overlap. And yes, he's having a good day, but that's exactly why we're making this decision today. And we're not waiting until I'm rushing him in at 11 o'clock at night, you know? And what's been really good for me is what I've realized is if my five and 12 year old kids can understand that and deal with it, then the general public can too. And so we have a responsibility to be talking about this with our pet owners today because with the influx of people that have gotten dogs, especially in the last four to five years, we're going to be dealing with a lot of senior pets in the next you know, five to 10 years. And as a result, we need to be educating people on what that's going to look like. And we do not spend nearly enough time educating people on the late stages of life. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time on puppies, on adolescents, and then it's like, oh, I've gotten through that. Now I have an adult dog. But the dogs that I get in, the owner surrenders that I get, these dogs that are left at shelters that are sick or old is they can't, they don't, they're, no one's expecting it. I didn't realize that my dog would become incontinent. I didn't realize they would have these kinds of diseases. I didn't realize that I would have to be feeding them at certain times. And so we need to be educating people on that. And if, like I said, if I can do it with my two kids, the general public can understand it. And you're right that there is a lack of information and also I think a lack of curiosity about that. Um, I'm friends with Susan McCullough, who is the author of House Training for Dummies and also Senior Dogs for Dummies. And one of those sells much, much better than the other. And she said it was really interesting to her that Senior Dogs for Dummies is not a niche because people think that they know their dog. Like, I know my dog. So what what are you going to teach me? But that there are all sorts of things to be watching for with a senior that we don't know just because we've known this dog um, and that having some information and some awareness about that, there are things that are likely to be more challenging for your dog and things that you might want to just keep an eye on early warning signs that can, if addressed early, have totally different later effects. Um, But she said it was really frustrating to her well, I'm putting words in her mouth. My impression <laughs> was that um, she cared so much about these older dogs, these senior dogs, and that she wanted so much to help their families and the families weren't seeking information. And while it's awesome that families with new dogs are seeking information, she'd celebrate that. But to to have you know put the same amount of heart and effort into each of her books and to see one was valued by the market and one was not, it says a little bit about our our curiosity as a culture. Well, same with our old old relatives, right? Mm-hmm. Well, also because as you reach into senior dog part or seniorhood in humans or anything like that, you are coming closer to the idea of loss. And so there's a pushback of I don't want to think about that. I don't want to experience mm-hmm. it. I don't want to talk about it. And so if I have to talk about it, then I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm going to feel lost. And that becomes emotional and separates from rational. 
And unfortunately, as humans, we really struggle with that sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about senior dogs, you know, you're, you're going to have to overlap the conversation of loss, but you also have to be aware of like, look, these are environmental changes that you might need to, like, if you live on a second story home and your older dog has been able to go up all those stairs, we might have to have that conversation of what happens when that dog is no longer able to do that. And then that causes anxiety in that animal, which then, you know, ripple effects into other behavior problems or not even behavior problems, but the dog's overall quality of life because he can no longer do things, Yeah, you know, and these are things that we have to be aware of, but it, it can trigger anticipatory grief. Grief is a very, is very painful. And humans are classic of like, I don't want to feel that. I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it and wait until the very last minute. So it's really about trying to have humans tap into things that they're uncomfortable discussing or feeling. And then we might get more openness. And I think we can do it. My hope is the work that I'm doing with senior dogs is showing people some of that, really get opening their eyes to some of this. Like, yeah, it's, and people will ask me, how do you do it? How do you do it? It's like, well, you're going to have to do it. If you have a dog, you're doing it too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just doing it on a larger scale, but we all are going to have to do it. So we have to start talking about it. Yeah. And it matters and it's beautiful and it's important. You know, like you're going to do it too. You, you are like most people are actually going to show up well for their pets right? all the way through till the end. Um, And it is hard and we do it because we love them. So I ask all my guests to share some words that have meaning and the words that you shared, I think actually relate to this well. So you shared a Tolkien quote, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. Tell me a little bit about that. When did those words come into your life? What do they mean to you? Um, Well, they have a really personal meaning to me. And they also have, you know, they relate to all aspects of my life, whether it's my personal physical struggles. I've had a lot. When I gave birth to my daughter, I had a lot of childbirth uh, trauma. And so I went through a lot of reconstruction and surgery and all of that. And that quote um, was about strength that I could go through really tough times and still, if I had good roots, if I had a good moral compass, if I had, you know, that resilience and that strength, I could overcome it. But it also applies to my work with old animals. It's the sign that we hang outside. It's like it starts with bring us your old, your sick, and your unwanted because we see the beauty in those animals more, you know, I will call a shelter and they'll say, look, we have this dog that's been sitting here. He's got three legs, no eyes, and he's half bald. And I'm like, sounds awesome. Bring him over. Whereas not a lot of people will be like, (laughs) but we see that beauty, the stuff underneath the shine that we see is. And then the other part is my childhood. One of my, the book that my father read to me when I was a kid was The Hobbit. And that so Tolkien has always been something I'll never forget sitting and listening to my dad read that book to me through a period of weeks, each chapter, each night, and looking forward to that. So uh there's like multifaceted areas of where that quote means a lot to me. And on certain days it will mean something different than another day, if that makes sense. But it's that that's kind of where it where it all boils down to. Can you tell me more about that? On certain days, it will mean something different than on other days. Yeah, well, it depends on what's going on with me. Like, you know, so I deal with chronic pain as a result of some of some of those um, issues and surgeries that I've had. And, you know, there are some days that I will use that 
quote in my mind or I'll, you know, if I tap into that inner strength that I have to get to get through chronic pain and disability, those are the, that's where that has to come through. And that's, again, it all relates why I, I empathize so much with dogs with chronic issues that have issues with, you know, especially incontinence and all of that. I mean, those are things that I'm like, I know what that's like. I know what chronic pain feels like. And I know how chronic pain can affect your brain. And I know how chronic pain can affect your anxiety and affect your ability and want to be able to function and find joy and all of those things. So sometimes it will apply to me personally. And then sometimes it will apply to the animal's that I'm working with, you know, or the way that I even deal with the public on how they approach or, you know, you, you will get, I get so much support and every now and then you'll get someone that will make some nasty comment or something that's just really unnecessary. And that's the joys of social media and being public with anything that you do. And I've, I've learned, you know, especially deep deep roots are not met by the frost, you know, where you can give, you can feed me some of that crap. You can give me that. And i I've got, I'm too okay in myself now as a Mm -hmm. a 39 year old woman that it doesn't affect me the way it would when I was 22, you know? Um, So it really depends what, what the day is and how that's quote's going to help me. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. I was, I was filling a lot of that in, in my head when you said that. And I was like, but I always want to know, am am I right? Am I heading in the right path or in a different (laughs) way? I think that's so cool. Um, The best part of my podcast is I get to ask people questions about whatever's running through my head. So fun for me. (laughs) So I think that's really beautiful. And I, I actually love you tied in the social media piece because that is an area that for many pet pros, they really struggle with that. They want to, to be active and engaged on social media. And it feels scary because so many people bring their stuff, the baggage with them um, and, and spew. <laughs> so um, deep roots are not reached by the frost. I love that you shared how that helps you because it is really true. When we can step back and look at, at some of these messages they aren't usually about the person they're directed at. They're usually about the person who sent it. Yes. And I don't know what the messages are you receive, but I would imagine some would be, you know, like what is the value of putting resources into old dogs when there are young dogs who need help, you know, like payoff kind of things. And you can see how a person could say that message all the way across the scale of understanding from uh, confused and not really seeing a big picture and just curious to learn more to snarkoleptic and just attacking of that this is wrong and bad and you shouldn't. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with about the work that you do. It has to right. do with their background, their thoughts and their ability to see nuance within a situation and to to recognize that decisions always have to be made. Like about anything. I mean, you could walk into my house and have an opinion about why I did what I did and you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. You just, that would be, oh, I never thought of that or I couldn't afford that or I, you know, but decisions are always, always made. And I think social media 
skews that so much because we're speaking in very short sentences and little tiny blurbs and filling it. Just like I said, I got to ask you the question of what does that mean to you? We don't, we don't actually do that on social media. Oh, interesting. What does that mean to you? That's not what gets asked. It's what are you talking about? You're so wrong. (laughs) Right. Well, we've lost. I mean, the problem with social media for me is, you know, we've lost in, in our interactions on that the feedback that we get when we speak to one another, mm-hmm. right? Learn that early as kids in our interactions. I said something to someone and I watched their facial expression in responding to that. And that didn't make me feel good or that made me feel good. So I'm going to use that feedback to now, you know, modify the way that I interact or the way that mm-hmm. because social media is flat and there are no tones in the way that you write something everything is interpreted or able to be interpreted by what that. So, and because there's no feedback and there's no real interpretation, everything is incredibly skewed. And unfortunately, what's what's worrying is if you are not aware that that's happening, then you can get sucked into a really negative void of it. Um, and so it's taken me a lot of time in saying like, nope, that is a, I call it a first face. Have you ever heard of the three faces? Mm-mm. So there's there's a Chinese um, idea that everybody has three faces to our personalities, right? Our first face is the face that we show the public, that we, you know, when we're out in Target or on social media, like that's our first face. Mm-hmm. And then the second face is the face that we see our our families and our friends and our close loved ones sort of see, okay? That other side of us that we really show. And then the third face is the only face that you see yourself. That's that's you. That's the only part of you that no one else really knows about, right? And I tend to do best my my in my life. I do best. All my faces are actually very close together, mm-hmm. right? But there are a lot of people where their first face and their third face are completely and totally separate, but they're always a f- reflection of each other. And so I've really come to understand that social media is a first face thing. You know, you're seeing some of that um, and that's not really a like I'm not taking that as the way that I I'm like I've I've really learned to put up that wall. So that's been my best way over these last few years in coping with it. I like that analogy. I haven't I've heard that thought process before, but not with it being the three phase faces. Yeah, and I would guess that self rapport is one of the biggest elements of bringing the faces closer together. Yep. That the greater self-rapport a person has, the more aligned all of those faces are and the less switching that needs to occur to go through those. Um, That's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and when you have something uncomfortable, just like when talking about senior dogs or death or grief, a lot of people don't want to go down that road. And so you have to get comfortably being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that is something that our society really struggles with. Yeah. Yep. And so we have podcasts where we have chats about uncomfortable topics and then it's safe. You're just driving along in your car and you hear these things and then you can listen or not listen. And Which is so funny because, you know, growing up in England, like in England, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk like it's just not done. You know, the other day I, I went through this whole horrible thing with the old dogs where we were scammed out of money and all. And I went into the bank 
sobbing, like crying and sobbing. And I was thinking to myself, my grandfather would be rolling over in his grave if he saw me crying in public because it's just not done. Um, <laughs> so it's so interesting that I've gone from this like British kid where you, <laughs> just, you know, sit tight, be quiet, you know, all of that to like, let's talk about death. <laughs> you know, and sadness and crying. Um, it's like I, I had to go big or go home in order to do it. Which is awesome because that allows you to go big on the good stuff too. Yes, you know? exactly. Like, like you really can, you can be sobbing in a bank and yes. delighting in a moment. Yes. Both. You can, you, you've got the range. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I say that to my husband all the time. I'm really lucky that I feel everything. I feel everything. And I I grieve these old dogs when they die. And I absolutely feel so much loss and, and love for them. But I'm, how lucky am I to feel that? I, that's really mm -hmm. living, you know? Yeah. And that means that I find so much joy in their recovery. And then I feel loss in their passing. But I'm not, I'm not emotionally bored. I'm, I'm really feeling that. And I feel lucky, you know, I used to curse that when I was younger and now I feel really lucky that I feel it. That's, that's my experience as well. I used to curse it when I was younger and now I'm like, oh yeah, I, yeah. I feel it all. Sometimes it's not pleasant, but I'm so grateful that I can and I do, uh, but whew, I don't know. 40 years of trying not to feel it all was yes. more exhausting than just leaning in and going, yep, here we go. <laughs> yep, exactly. The waves are crashing over me. It's the good ones. Oh, wait, here's a bad one. Okay, it's a, <laughs> we, we'll get them all. This is awesome. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, Helen, how could they do that? So they can learn more about me through two websites. The best one is No Monkey Business Dog Training. If you want to learn about the work that I do with dogs in general, whether it's, you know, behavior or any of that, or uh, if you want to learn about my old dog's work, um, you can go to Old Dogs Go to Helen. Um, the They do, sometimes they overlap. I, I'm doing a course called The Good Death, where I talk about death as a process for, for pet owners. And that's listed on no monkey business dog training. It's not part of the 501c3, but the proceeds of people who go to that course goes to the 501c3. So they, they're usually intertwined with each other a lot. So both of those websites are great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for diving in and talking to me today about death and yeah. <laughs> grief and real life and beauty You're welcome. <laughs> and all the things. I love it. I'm, I am so much the kind of person who just really wants to have like a, a deep, let's have a deep conversation. Yes. I cannot talk about the weather. I'm not good at that. But want to talk about death? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's me too. So we, <laughs> we we were fast friends from the beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> sort of like the, the introverts, uh, you know, quick quick connection kind of piece of like, can we just jump ahead of that, like getting to know you part and talk about something that's meaningful? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about childhood trauma. You know, hi, nice to meet you. What happened to you when you were a kid? You know, and then, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, all right, cool. We got that out of the way. Now we can talk about anything. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm super grateful. It was so fun talking to you. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com, where you can be steady, be strong, and belong.